our hearts just like completely dropped to the floor. Nature's deadliest organisms. It felt like a machine drilling into my temples. They can hijack our bodies. He was hanging on to life by a, a string. Disable our immune systems. I was grossed out. And eat us from within. Was today the day that you would lose your son? For those infected, they are the monsters inside me. Megan and Jonathan Jordan are newlyweds, living a small-town life in southern Mississippi. Both are in their early 20s. He called me the night before he asked me out. We talked for like five hours. I met Megan in ninth grade math class and just went from there. We dated throughout high school. We were together for four years, and then we got married. But their pride and joy is their son, Braylon, who surprised them from the start. I wasn't supposed to have him that day, so they just walked in. It was like, do you want to have a baby today? I just looked at Jonathan, and I was like, like yeah, sure. But it was one of the best days of my life. And for two years, Braylon is the center of their new family. He's funny. He's loud. Like, he's completely boy, for real. <laughs> it just means everything to us. Everything we do is for him. But all of their love cannot hold back the dangers lurking in plain sight. One summer evening, they sit Braylon at the table for dinner. I cooked him his favorite meal, corn dogs and french fries. He normally eats everything we give him. He really likes to eat. But we noticed that he was just pushing it away. We ended up just thinking he just wasn't hungry. But Braylon doesn't reject everything in front of him. He did have a red Gatorade. He drank a lot of it, like if he was dehydrated. After dinner, Jonathan takes Braylon up to bed while Megan relaxes in the living room. I was watching TV and the door to our bedroom was open. I heard Braylon start to cough. I thought he was just coughing like he had something in his throat. And then I heard him vomit. I ran to the bedroom and Jonathan was holding him up. I went and got some towels and wet washcloths to wash his face off. I thought he had a stomach virus and was throwing up because of the virus. Stomach viruses are one of the most common ailments to afflict young children. In extreme cases, they can leave a child dangerously dehydrated. I took him to the living room to watch more TV. I continued to give him liquids and tried to get him to go to sleep, but he wasn't having it. He was antsy and he wouldn't sleep. And he just continued throwing everything up that I tried to give him. Five hours after the vomiting started, Megan finally coaxes her son to sleep. The next morning, Megan gets ready to go to work. Normally when I get ready for work, Braylon will come in there. But that morning, his body was really tired. He didn't want to walk, and he just wanted to be carried. I was concerned about Braylon, and all I wanted to do was cuddle him and hold him and let him know that he was loved. So she gives the sick boy a treat to lift his spirits. I tried to get him to eat his favorite breakfast meal, bacon and biscuits, but he wouldn't have any of it. That really concerned me because that's something he would always eat. Now, Megan faces a dilemma. 
I was torn if I should keep my job and go to work or stay with my son and make sure he was okay. I didn't know which way to go. And then I noticed he didn't move. I started to panic. I decided I had to go to the hospital. So Megan sets off for the ER. I kept looking back at him and he was really spaced out. I started to wonder if what was wrong with him wasn't a stomach virus. I started to think that it was something worse. 20 minutes later, Megan arrives at the hospital with Braylon in her arms. I, just, I, just, I, just, I was trying to sign us in and Braylon started to pass out. His head fell back and his eyes rolled back in his head and his body just kind of went limp. It was like he wasn't there. I was really, really scared. I didn't even know how to ask for help. I didn't know whether I should run into the ER or just wait for somebody to come get me. A nurse notices their plight and rushes Braylon and Megan into an examination room. And I'm sitting there not knowing what to do because he's not responsive. It was really hard. I was really scared. I didn't know if he was going to be okay. Doctors place the comatose boy on an intravenous drip, and Megan calls Jonathan to come to the hospital. When I got there, my baby was laid out on the bed, and Megan was crying. It's just a horrible feeling. Jonathan and I looked at each other, and we understood that something was really wrong with him. I started whispering in his ear and, and talking to him, and then he came too. Which was a relief, and like it felt like we could breathe again. But their relief is short-lived. As doctors probe the boy's case history, they make a chilling suggestion. He asked us if there was a way that Braylon could have gotten into any cleaning products under the sink or anything like that. More than 60,000 U.S. children a year suffer accidental poisoning. And tragically, over 100 of these cases are fatal. I didn't think that Braylon had swallowed anything. We had locks on every one of our cabinets, so there was no way he could have gotten into it. Doctors x-ray Braylon. I just laying down on the table and he's whining because he don't want to lay down. So we're telling him, let's just take a picture real quick and get this over with. So I held his hand and, and they snapped a picture. And as soon as they took the x-ray, a picture showed up on the computer. I noticed what was in his stomach. My heart sank. I knew something was wrong before she even said anything. Jonathan turns to the monitor. All you seen was eight little white balls. I said, I know what those are. They were magnetic beads. Magnetic beads are a popular office toy marketed to adults as a stress reliever. The x-ray shows that Braylon has swallowed eight. Some research suggests that a young child's instinct to put objects into his or her mouth is a good thing. It's linked to the development of a stronger immune system. But the downside is that children may swallow dangerous items, such as small batteries, coins, or pieces of broken glass. In the United States alone, over 1,000 children die every year from medical complications resulting from the ingestion of foreign objects. Inside Braylon's digestive system, the beads have stuck together, pinching parts of his intestinal wall between the individual beads. Eventually, 
the pinched intestinal walls puncture and toxic waste matter begins to seep out into Braylon's body. Doctors relate the news to Megan and Jonathan. We kind of just looked at each other and didn't understand. We didn't let him play with them. We didn't give them to him. How did he find these and how did he swallow them without us knowing? Jonathan went home and he looked around. They were in the cabinet that we kept them in, but eight were gone. Some must have just rolled away while we were playing with them, and somehow Braylon got them. We kind of put all the blame on us. How did we let this happen? It was really hard because we felt like we were the reason that Braylon was sick. We were the reason that he was going through the pain because we bought them. Doctors transfer Braylon to Children's Hospital in New Orleans. There, pediatric gastroenterologist Dr. Adam Knoll and his team whisk the ailing boy into the operating room for intestinal surgery. We had no idea that this type of magnet could cause this much damage. He had holes in several parts of his intestine where the magnet beads had caused tissue breakdown. I was very concerned about that. And we're all just waiting there in the waiting room, not knowing what's going on or if he's okay. We were scared. And we prayed together, which is not something we normally do. At last, the surgeon comes out of the operating room. All we could do was like look at each other, and it was like our hearts just like completely dropped to the floor. In New Orleans, two-year-old Braylon Jordan has accidentally swallowed eight magnetic beads, which are now destroying his intestines. Our hearts just, like, completely dropped to the floor. And now, the surgeon tells Braylon's parents that although he has removed the magnetic beads, the subsequent tears in the boy's intestines have led to a serious infection. Infections can cause something called septic shock. Septic shock can occur when bacteria inside the intestines contaminate the bloodstream, triggering organ failure. Some children, when they go into septic shock, will die. And Braylon was septic. All I could do was cry because it was so unfair that it was happening. And it made me really scared. And I was hurting for him, and I just wanted him to be okay. But Braylon's problems don't end with septic shock. He had lost blood supply to his intestine, and because of that, the intestine was no longer viable. The surgeons must remove almost all of Braylon's small intestine. That is a huge loss. That's just not something that is trivial. I mean, that is a major, major league surgery and a major league post-surgical problem. It was like we got punched in the stomach all over again. We couldn't talk. We just sat there and cried. I let it sink in, and I just couldn't take it. I just broke down and just let it out. I had to. Where we didn't know if Braylon was going to make it. I mean, he was literally hanging on to life by a, a string. 
It was really difficult going moment by moment, wondering if today was the day that you would lose your son. Braylon remains in a coma while doctors use broad-spectrum antibiotics to fight his septic shock. Slowly, the infection subsides. Then, 32 days after first arriving at the hospital, the doctors take Braylon off life support. He opened his eyes and he couldn't talk because he had a breathing tube through it down his neck. But he opened his eyes, he realized it was us, and he wanted us to hold him. That was seriously the best day of my life. Against the odds, Braylon survives. And after another month in the hospital, Jonathan and Megan finally take him home. The day we left the hospital was amazing. We just sent him in his car seat. He's so happy. And we're like, are you ready to go home? And he just like busts out laughing like he's so excited. Today, Braylon is back to his animated self, playing with his toy cars and enjoying the outdoors. But with only 10% of his intestines intact, the magnets have made their mark. He has to have this tube that goes through his skin into his blood vessels that supplies his nutrition. Today, Braylon wears a little book bag that holds all of his vitamins and everything he needs to survive. Braylon acts like his backpack is a part of him. It doesn't bother him, and he's comfortable with it. Though Braylon's long-term health requires future surgeries, Megan and Jonathan remain hopeful. Braylon is the reason I wake up every day. He makes me happy. Even when he's bad, he makes me happy. <laughs> In the United States, there have been about 1,700 cases of people requiring medical attention after ingesting magnetic beads. As a result, in 2012, magnetic beads were banned from sale. However, over 3 million sets of magnetic beads have already been sold to the public, and the majority of those are thought to remain in offices and homes across America. A mysterious killer haunts a teenage ballerina. It set my head on fire. We were really fighting for her life. Megan McNeil is a 15-year-old student living with her parents, Jeff and Carla, in Lubbock, Texas. Both mother and daughter share a particular passion. Dance has always been important for Megan. She was raised in a dance family. It's a big part of our lives. I started dance with my mom when I was two years old. I grew up with my mom being my dance teacher. She was an accomplished ballerina. I really enjoyed dancing, having your whole body execute these moves. Megan is also a star student, consistently bringing home straight A's. I always enjoyed school, I enjoyed my friends. I was very proud that I hadn't missed a single day of school in my fifth grade. But Megan's enthusiasm for life is about to be crushed by a mysterious force. The summer before she starts high school, Megan attends a church country retreat. About four days into camp, I noticed a strange feeling around my eyes. I wondered if it was possible to strain an eye muscle, but wasn't affecting my vision, so it didn't seem like a big problem. When camp ends three days later, she returns home to her mother. 
The minute I saw her step down off the bus, I knew something was different. She had pale, dull eyes. Her face was a little puffy, but didn't ring any alarm bells. I figured a couple of days rest and we would have her back complete again. But rest doesn't seem to help. So I was laying in a comfortable chair in the living room watching TV and felt like there was something inside my ear burning. The whole left side of my head around that ear hurt really badly. It seemed odd that a 15-year-old was having an earache, but there was a lake at the church camp, and they spent a lot of time in the water. So we were thinking maybe in the water, she had gotten swimmer's ear in the ear canal. Carla gives Megan antibiotic eardrops. My mom put the eardrops in, and it set my head on fire. I screamed. I just toughed it out and finished off the eardrops. I just figured that the pain would eventually go away, and I would eventually return to normal. But for two weeks, Megan's ear pain persists, even when her first day of high school arrives. I still had this intense pain centered around my ear, but I didn't want to be missing the first day of school. So the whole way, I was trying to think, how sick am I? We pull up in front of the school, and she just gets overwhelmed. Tears started to flow. She just cried. The light was bothering me so much. My head was hurting so bad. It felt like a machine and drilling into my temples. I said, Mama, I don't think I can make it. Can we go back home? It was alarming to me that she didn't want to go to school. But I hated to be the person that was missing out on all the class discussions and fitting into a new school. That's when everything started to dawn on me. Something's terribly wrong. And so the first day of school, we turned around and went home. Megan stays home for the rest of the day. Early the next morning, Carla checks in on her daughter. I went in to wake her up, and she couldn't move. She couldn't move her legs out of the cover. I really panicked. I called my husband, and it took both of us to pull her legs out of the bed. Our legs were just not working. Things were getting scarier. But 10 minutes later, Megan mysteriously regains her ability to walk. Nevertheless, Carla rushes her daughter to see a doctor. We tell the doctor that she had been at a summer camp down in some murky water in East Texas where it's very humid. This doctor said, let's take some blood work and let's analyze it for all these possible diseases. He said, I'm especially interested in the possibility of Lyme disease. Lyme disease is a bacterial infection transmitted by a parasitic tick, causing muscle weakness, headaches, and in extreme cases, it is fatal. Lyme disease, which seemed sort of reasonable considering I had been at a summer camp. Maybe there were ticks around. We were just optimistic that we would take a bottle of pills and life would get back to normal again. The doctor takes Megan's blood sample, and three days later, he calls them with puzzling news. 
this doctor said, well, it's not Lyme disease, so it seems like you're healthy. It's really frustrating because the next morning I have to struggle to get out of bed. There were more questions than answers. We were frustrated. For the rest of the semester, Megan experiences severe muscle weakness and intense headaches. Five additional doctors try, but fail to diagnose her. Megan struggles through her classes and dance rehearsals. At that point, we realized I'm not seeming to get any better. And we sat down and talked about how I don't think I'm going to be able to do dance right now. It was a very hard decision for us because I've been dancing since I was two years old. That's all I knew. Megan manages to finish the ninth grade despite her debilitating symptoms. There's something wrong. We had to do something. Carla takes Megan to yet another specialist. And we went into the examining room and met this doctor. He took the usual list of symptoms in his office and he asked my mom to step out of the room. I thought it was a little strange. It seemed odd that I would have to go outside of the room. He asked me some questions. Are you pregnant? I'm trying to hide it. I said, no, I'm not. Are you doing drugs? I said, no, I'm not. I'm just sick. It was very frustrating that nobody trusted me to be an honest teenage girl. And then he asked me if I thought my parents were poisoning my food. I was really frustrated with the doctors. I said, no, they're not. My parents are wonderful. I was very angry. Megan storms out of the doctor's office to leave with her mother. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. That was the first time that I was really angry with the medical profession because they were not listening. They were grasping at straws. We knew our child. There was no doubt in our mind that she was fighting something that was taking her down from the inside. But with nowhere else to turn, the family abandons this seemingly futile quest for a cure. And for four long years, Megan endures the physical agony of her debilitating condition. After nearly 20 doctor visits and multiple trips to the emergency room, Carla takes yet another shot in the dark. She brings her daughter to Dr. Jeffrey Hannell, a general practitioner who happens to be a friend of the family. When I met Megan, I could tell she was extremely frustrated, not knowing what was going on with her body. She started describing her symptoms, and I started thinking, this sounds vaguely familiar. This sounds like something I've heard of. He said, I think I have an idea of what this might be, but we need to do a blood test first. Three days later, Megan finally receives a diagnosis. When I got Megan's blood test back, it proved that she was fighting the West Nile virus. The West Nile virus is a potentially deadly agent that originated in East Africa. We were shocked. We weren't just fighting for Megan's recovery. We were really fighting for her life. Inside Megan's body, the virus travels through the bloodstream and invades her brain cells and replicates inside them, turning the cell into a factory. The virus sends countless copies of itself throughout her central nervous system, leading to her torturous headaches, muscle weakness, and extreme exhaustion. 
West Nile virus was first detected in the United States in 1999, but the infection often goes undiagnosed because only around one in 200 people develop symptoms, and those symptoms resemble many other illnesses. In 2012, 286 people were known to have died in the United States as the result of the West Nile virus. Dr. Hanel lays out the ugly truth for Megan. For some people, West Nile causes debilitating effects of strokes, paralysis, or even death. And I was devastated. It was hitting the bottom. And Dr. Hanel has more bad news. West Nile, unfortunately, it's a virus that there's no cure for yet. The people that have it chronically will have headaches and tiredness and fatigue, which means for the rest of their life, they're going to be fighting an uphill battle to get control of this disease. And I think that was the first time that we both cried because we knew this was going a place that we didn't think we would ever be. I felt pretty miserable. However, Dr. Hanel gives them a ray of hope. He relates that Megan can fight the symptoms of this chronic infection with proper sleep, exercise, and vitamins. But how did Megan initially contract the West Nile virus? The West Nile virus typically cycles between birds and mosquitoes. It can enter the human body when a person is bitten by an infected mosquito. And Megan recalls where she got bitten. I was playing outside so much at church camp. There's a lake that we played in, just a great place for mosquitoes. And I got bit by a mosquito. It's amazing that one mosquito bite could change the course of someone's life. Megan carefully follows Dr. Hanel's advice to fight the symptoms of her West Nile infection. And slowly, she turns the corner. It was just take care of her, making sure that she had great nutrition. My health has improved so much since my initial illness. We're very grateful. We know that we could have lost her completely. Today, Megan is 24 years old, has recently married, and is working on a PhD in bioengineering. My experiences have helped motivate me to help other people not go through the same adventure that I went on. But the West Nile virus continues to haunt her. Really strenuous exercise wears me out, and all I want to do when I come home is go to bed. However, the virus cannot steal her passion. I went back to dance. And I found a new love for dance that I hadn't had before. It feels like everything just slides into place while you're dancing. Absence definitely made my heart grow fonder. In recent years, the West Nile virus has spread across the U.S. and has even been detected as far north as Canada. The best way to prevent becoming infected with West Nile virus is to use deep-based insect repellents in areas where mosquitoes are known to carry the disease. What could be moving around in my eye? That's not normal. Twenty-five-year-old Israel Oriana lives in Oakland, California. He's engaged to his childhood friend, Sandy. I was initially attracted to Sandy from her always smiling, her happiness, her joy. I was impressed by her faith in God and her love for attending church. I told them if he wanted the relationship to be more serious that he needed to talk to my dad. And I just thought, he's not gonna talk to my parents, and he did. So that's how we started dating. Israel is a theology student studying to become a minister. 
God is very important to me. My mission is to share the gospel. There's more to life than just living for yourself. And I've been on several mission trips to show people God's love. But Israel's dedication to religious spirit may cost him in more ways than one. One spring evening, Israel is home alone. I read the Bible frequently as a practice of my faith. And on one of those occasions, I actually looked down and realized my leg was itching. I saw these weird uh, bumps. They were warm in temperature. They were hot. I figured maybe I had an allergic reaction to something I'd eaten, but they weren't anything to worry about. I just figured I'd let my body heal on its own and it would go away. Israel continues with his studies through the night. And sure enough, three days later, his expectation is met. I was getting dressed and I realized that the bumps had gone away. I was happily surprised that I was okay. Israel doesn't give the matter further thought until five months later. I was at home, I was reading my Bible, and I realized that the bumps that I found on my legs were actually on my stomach and my abdomen. They were the same type of bumps. But now, they have grown in size. The bumps were probably about the size of maybe an egg, oval in shape, and they were actually raised up from the skin. They were hot and itchy. But I didn't think it was a big deal, so I didn't tell anyone, didn't tell my friends, I just let it be. Israel holds his secret for a week, until one morning, something dawns on him. I was reading the Bible, as I frequently do, and the bumps had gone away on their own. So I figured my body won the fight. I was happily surprised and went on with the rest of my day. Israel continues his religious studies. And one year later, he and Sandy get married. But their honeymoon period is short-lived. A few days after returning from our honeymoon, I was ill. As we're getting ready for bed, I was very lethargic. It was hard to just walk around and move. Sandy takes his temperature. He was at 103. I was worried and concerned. I thought, okay, this is more than just a mild fever. This is a fever fever. Wow, we just got married and, you know, did I break him already? What happened? I just thought, if he's this sick and he has fevers this bad, we need to go to the doctor. But Israel has a different perspective. I don't see the point of going to a doctor for them to tell me, here, take this aspirin and here's your bill for however much. The doctor wasn't even an option. I was frustrated. He was just sick and there was like nothing that I could do to help him. He was just kind of this manly man. If it's not broken, then it's okay. He didn't realize that during that time of being miserable, I'm miserable with him because he's upset or, or just irritable. And I want him to take care of the issue instead of prolonging it. But 10 days of Sandy's care seemed to do the trick for Israel. I was in bed reading my Bible and I realized that the fever was gone, it had broke. I was happy I didn't have to go to the doctor and be treated for anything. My body just did what it does and fight the infection. But that night, the fight resumes. As we're getting ready for bed, all of a sudden, I felt an itch in my right eye. It felt like something was in there. It got painful. It began to be unbearable. 
I had to look in the mirror. I had to see there had to be something that was causing my eye to be this uncomfortable. Israel gets a closer look. I looked in my eye and I couldn't make anything out. I couldn't see any foreign object. Then I said, what are you still doing up? You know, come to bed. And then I asked my wife, Sandy, to look at my eye and see if she could see something that I couldn't. I looked into his eye and I could see that there was irritation and there was what to me appeared like a vein inflamed. But as Sandy looks in closer, she sees something else. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. What I thought was a vein, it started moving. And it was just wiggling back and forth. What could be moving around in my eye? There isn't anything that should be moving in your eye. I looked into the mirror, I saw a string-like object. It was moving around in a serpentine motion. I was in shock and disbelief and worried at that point. I said, Israel, you have a warm in your eye. We need to go to the hospital now. I didn't give him the option, I didn't ask him. I just told him, get dressed and we're going to the hospital. 20 minutes later, they arrive at the emergency room at Highland Hospital in Oakland, California. I was met by the triage nurse, and I told them that I had something moving in my eye. I said, I think it's a worm, but he couldn't see anything. I was annoyed. I had the worm-like object in my eyeball earlier, and now when I need to show it to them, it's not there. I'm pretty sure this guy didn't believe us. I'm sure he thought we were a little bit crazy. But nonetheless, the nurse passes along Israel's case to ER resident Dr. Charlotte Wills. This just sounded too incredible, that there would be a worm in his eye. Often patients, they think something is in their eye or in their skin, and oftentimes we don't find anything, and it's actually more of a psychiatric diagnosis. So was this something that was real, or was this a delusional parasitosis? Delusional parasitosis is a psychological condition whose sufferers strongly believe they're infected with parasites without any actual infection. I was annoyed that nobody believed me. I'm not crazy or a crackhead. Despite her skepticism, Dr. Wills takes a close look. When we looked in Israel's eye, we were all stunned. It was moving. So I told Israel, you're right. There's a worm in your eye. And this unholy revelation could have serious consequences. I just couldn't believe it. It was still unrealistic that he could have this. I didn't know if it was going to affect his vision. I didn't know if he was going to go blind. I was scared. I was shocked for sure. I was worried if, if I was going to lose my eyesight or what was going to happen. The doctor then asked if I'd ever been out of the country, which I responded, yes. I've actually been to different countries since I've been on a mission trip to Europe, South America. The doctor asked if I had traveled to Africa. I said, yes. She said, West Africa? I said, yes, actually, a couple of years ago, I was in Equatorial Guinea. And she responded, that's it, you have a parasite. That indeed is one of the places that you can find a Loa Loa infection. The Loa Loa parasite is a roundworm that lives between layers of connective tissue under the skin and even burrows in the eye. It was bizarre and frankly unnerving to think that another organism was living inside of my body. It seemed unreal. It seemed like we were just in a dream. My husband has a worm in his eye. I was grossed out. 
For two years, the Loa Loa parasite creeps through Israel's skin tissue and feeds on his body fluids, leading to the bumps on his legs and abdomen, known as calabar swellings. But the Loa Loa parasite does not discriminate in its journey across the body and can even wriggle its way through the subcutaneous tissue of the eye, causing Israel's extraordinary eye infection. Left untreated, Loa Loa worms can thrive in the human body for up to 17 years. Although the Loa Loa worm does not cause blindness, long-term infections can lead to kidney damage, fluid around the lung, and scarring of the heart muscle. This really can be a serious infection depending on if the number of worms in the body gets to be high, then you become at higher risk for damage to the heart, to the kidneys. The idea of it traveling to his vital organs, that was scary. But how did Israel contract the Loa Loa parasite? The Loa Loa parasite cycles between deer flies and human hosts. When a fly takes a blood meal from an infected person, Worm larvae grow inside the fly's abdomen and then travel to its mouth. When the infected fly then bites another human, the larvae enter the wound and continue to thrive under the skin of the new human host. And Israel has an idea of how he might have contracted this infection. So when I went on my mission trip to Equatorial Guinea, we went for a hike in a jungle, and I think maybe that's where I was bit by a fly. Dr. Wills puts Israel on a specialized course of antiparasitic medication called diethylcarbamazine. Two weeks and 40 pills later, Israel wins the fight. I was glad to say that I was well and parasite-free. I don't know exactly what happened to this parasite, but I know that it died somewhere inside me. Today, Israel is a minister, and he remains happily married to Sandy. I would like to think that Israel left this experience thinking, I don't need to ignore every symptom. However, some things never change. I don't like to go to the doctor if I don't have to. The Loa Loa parasite is thought to infect up to 13 million people in Central and West Africa. The best way to prevent becoming infected when traveling in endemic regions is to take preventative medications, use insect repellent, and wear clothing that covers the skin. For more blood-curdling monsters and their hideous habits, visit our website, animalplanet.com slash monstersinsideme. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.